Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently spoke with Rowan Flad about his book, Salt Production and Social Hierarchy in Ancient China, an archaeological investigation of specialization in China's Three Gorges, and that came out with Cambridge University Press in 2011. Now, this is a book that's about so much more than salt production, and though it's um, clearly an archaeological studies book, for somebody who, like me, who's not working on um, archaeology and who's actually quite unfamiliar with the literature of on the history of archaeology and the practice of archaeology, I got so much um, out of this book just in terms of sort of thinking more creatively about evidence, thinking about how to tell a story with very varied um, and very, but a very rich archive of physical, textual, um, all kinds of materials. This is an extraordinarily creative study. It's a very inspiring study, um, and it's a study that I think is really, really rich um, for scholars of all different sorts. Um, So I hope you enjoy uh, listening to our conversation because I certainly enjoyed talking with Rowan about the book. So hi, Rowan. Hi. We're here today to talk with Rowan Flad about his recent book, Salt Production and Social Hierarchy in Ancient China, an Archaeological Investigation of Specialization in China's Three Gorges. Now, this is a really wonderfully rich book for me, in part because of the inherent interest of the case study, which is timely and just really interesting on its own merits, but also in part because of the methodological insights um, that I think carry over really nicely from the kind of discipline that this book is written as a part of archaeology to certainly my discipline of history and to other disciplines as well. I think one of the great things about this book is how carefully and thoughtfully it goes through um, the kind of evidence and methodology and concepts that contribute to really you know, when it comes down to it, any understanding of how to know something about the past. Um, and so it was really wonderful to read this. I learned a ton um, and I'm really uh, thrilled that you're talking with us today. So thank you. Thank you. It's really nice to hear that. I mean, when you write books like uh, these that are fairly specialized in terms of their um, orientation and their expected audience, it's nice to hear somebody from a different discipline who actually I could follow it and um, got something out of it. So it's really nice to hear. Well, honestly, I mean, I think it does a really good job of sort of making clear what brought you to the conclusions that you did. And um, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. So, so Rowan, can you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? So what brought you to um, China and to archaeology of China in particular? 
Uh, a lot, and I'm, um, I sort of have a stock answer, but it, uh, how I get there is uh, different every time I present it. Uh, I, I mean, the simple answer is that I got to China through archaeology, in a sense. I was a uh, an anthropology major as an undergraduate. I went to University of Chicago and did my undergraduate there. <laughs> and um, uh, I went to University of Chicago um, among other for, for among other reasons because they had a strong anthropology department. Um, they had archaeologists there. And this is something I thought I might want to do um, when I was younger, as perhaps many kids do. Uh, and and ultimately, at, at during my time as an undergraduate, I, I didn't focus specifically on archaeology, although I did take a number of classes and I did a field school. Um, but the University of Chicago is the sort of place where it encourages you to uh, uh, take a wide variety of courses. And, um, and so I took advantage of that and had a very liberal arts style education. Um, Nevertheless, I did increasingly over the course of my time there become more interested in uh, pursuing archaeology more seriously. And I, as I said, I did a field school and then I went back um, to that same site, which is in Spain. It's a Paleolithic cave site in northern Spain as a um, as postgraduate uh, and um, and went to work in Turkey a little bit as well. And then I got a job working for an engineering firm in, in uh, the U.S. in the Northeast doing archaeology and decided that uh, my experience my experiences were positive. I, I decided I really was interested in pursuing archaeology professionally, uh, but on the, on the academic side of things. Um, and I also took that time to really think about the types of questions I was most interested in pursuing uh, as an academic archaeologist. And what one of the sets of questions that interested me the most were was was uh, the set of questions that surrounds kind of emerging complexity, the uh, origins of states, uh, the uh, development of civilization, if you will. Um, those sorts of big questions of uh, how societies changed in the past uh, during one of kind of the formative stages in, in uh, human uh, civilization. So I decided that um, I should think about where in the world uh, it made the most sense to pursue these types of questions based on the coursework I'd done in the past, my language background, my, my other interests. Um, and I increasingly became interested in China. I'd taken just a little bit of coursework on China and in, uh, as an undergraduate. So I didn't actually know nearly as much as I perhaps I should have <laughs> going into it. But I, um, I started starting studying on my own the Chinese language and reading uh, independently about uh, Chinese history. And then um, essentially got applied to schools where I thought uh, I could be productive and learn something more about China and, and, and also do... Chinese archaeology with a uh, with a field work orientation. Uh, my interest in in archaeology as a discipline um, stemmed to some extent from the uh, nice confluence of uh, the, the empirical aspect of archaeological practice and being able to engage with materials in the field, understand their context, and and kind of put things together uh, in that respect. And so I really enjoy that aspect of archaeology. Um, but it's also a kind of, uh, theoretical and, and um, intellectual discipline, and, and I, I, that was a nice combination of uh, uh, things that got me interested in the first place. So I was very uh, intent on trying to not only uh, study the questions of emerging uh, complex society, but in a place where I could do something in the field and gather primary data. I was actually unaware of the fact that the time I got into uh, Chinese archaeology, was it was only beginning to become possible to do primary field work for those who were outside of China, um, and so my timing happened to be very good um, in terms of doing field work there. But um, 
I was actually ignorant of that fact when I was going in. So it was that that's the kind of semi long version of how I got interested in Chinese Right. So this this book actually started off as a dissertation, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the process of going from the stage of a dissertation to the book? And especially because a lot of our listeners either are in the process right now of working on a dissertation or have been through this process themselves. And um, it's it tends to be um, a kind of process that it remains a little bit opaque um, yeah. before you actually, you know, get down to the dirty business of it. And even sometimes, you know, during that. So. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I can offer that much clarity. I think it's still rather opaque to me, but I can tell you a bit about my experiences with the process, which were uh, perhaps um, even more atypical than most um, in the sense that I um, I was advised um, by some people as I finished my dissertation and started working uh, full-time that uh, dissertations don't uh, turn into books these days and that I shouldn't be trying to essentially turn my dissertation into a book directly, despite the fact that it was more or less written in that style, although the book that has resulted is, is different in some ways from the, the dissertation. Um, and so with that in mind, I was publishing articles that related to chapters in my dissertation um, in, uh, in journals and in edited volumes. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I proposed uh, to a press, uh, a book that was um, not the dissertation, but that related to the dissertation in some ways. And it was one that was uh, trying to both discuss the uh, the research itself, the research that I did at the site of Jongba, which was very site-based um, uh, study, as, as you would see, you will see from the book, um, uh, with work that a colleague of mine, uh, who was also a PhD student at UCLA, which is where I did my dissertation, um, did also related to the work that we collectively did at, at Tongba. So we worked together at Tongba with a larger team, um, and he wrote a dissertation that was on the broader regional context within which uh, this site sits. And my dissertation was focused uh, specifically on the development of uh, uh of economic activities in particular but, and, and related activities at the site over time. Mm -hmm. And so the, my idea was to work with him to produce a, a volume that combined the strengths of the two dissertations and put it into a broader context, but with a specific emphasis on, on the three gorges, kind of the immediate surroundings within which this site fits, because we thought that it would be very timely given the recent completion of the three gorges dam. Uh, it would be a nice marketing uh, tool and so forth for uh, a press to be interested in. So we proposed that a, a, essentially a book that would combine the the data chapters from our two dissertations and put it in the, in the context. Um, and uh, we were fortunate to get some positive reactions to this uh, proposal um, from a couple of presses, including Cambridge, who ultimately published this book. Um, uh, and But their reaction was after they sent out the proposal for review but this sounds great, but it should be bigger. It should the the, the regional context within this, which this uh, site is placed should be broader and include the entire middle and upper Yangtze River valleys and be a synthesis of that sort of region of that region. Um, and so this sounded great, um, and we still thought we could do it in in terms of combining the dissertations, adding a little bit here and there. Um, and I, I basically I, I basically took over the task of of uh, framing the book and 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 writing the kind of first draft and. My, my colleague's uh, not a native English speaker, for one thing, and, and this was more of a, 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 a project that I had uh, suggested in the first place. Um, so I started writing this book, 
And um, the more I wrote it, the less of my dissertation was in it. Um, and uh, and the more I wrote it, the less of my dissertation was in it. And so and and that carried on until essentially the dissertation was not being included much at all, particularly the the, the data folk, the chapters and the uh, the the introduction to the methodology I used and so forth. Um, and this was not necessarily frustrating. Oh, it was a little bit frustrating because it was meaning the book was taking a lot longer than I expected it to. Um, and so I had some discussions with my editor at Cambridge about this, and she suggested, well, I could consider um, having a, a more streamlined version of the dissertation and proposing that separately, um, which is essentially what I did. I, uh, but in, in that case, it wasn't based on a proposal. It was the full manuscript. So I, I distilled down the dissertation to those parts that were not being included in this book and were not um, completely published elsewhere um, and uh, and sent it in and um Fortunately, that didn't take very long because it existed in the form of a dissertation. Um, and it also uh, allowed for me to think more clearly about what the main points of the dissertation project were and, and really focus on that. So that, that ended up being the book that's come out. And the other, the other book, which is um, it's done and we're working on the, the figures for right now, will also be coming out with, with Cambridge soon. So it, it, in the end, it'll be a nice compliment because you'll have, there'll be two books that kind of uh, complement each other and don't overlap too much. That's great. And actually, um, mentioning this collaborator and mentioning this other scholar who you're working with um, mm-hmm. leads me to something else I wanted to ask you about. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the book that on many levels, uh, this project was very much based on and dependent on collaborative relationships yeah. right? in order to make the fieldwork possible, um, among other things. And um, you thank people for help with um, the drawings and so on and so forth, which is um, really fascinating as something to think about um, in terms of the methodology of academic work. I mean, it seems like it's really a direction that a lot of humanities work is going um, right now. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process for you. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about the importance of collaboration to um, how this book actually came to be? And in particular, you mentioned scholars from the Sichuan Provincial Institute of Cultural Relics and Archaeology. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, so I, I mean, collaboration is uh, really fundamental to all empirical archaeological work. Um, and that actually sets it apart from uh, some humanistic, dis- at least traditionally, from some humanistic disciplines and even social science disciplines, even other, other approaches to anthropology, because um, there, there's a lot more, I think, of, of a solo attitude towards certain types of ethnographic research and, and um, uh, archive-based research. But well, archaeological research that's field-oriented really never can have, take can happen um, uh, alone. And uh, so it's inherently a, a collaborative uh, process. The, this, uh, the collaborator that I've been talking about up till now is uh, this guy named Po Chen Chen, or Chen Bo Chen, who's at National Taiwan University now. Um, he... Um, uh, he and I have been worked uh, together very closely ever since we were graduate students. Um, it was a time in our lives where we spent uh, essentially two years uh, living in the same room and excavating in the same archaeological unit. So 24 hours a day, you can get on each other's nerves after a while <laughs> if that happens. But we were still very good friends and, again, still working on things together. Um, but it, it, he was, like me, somebody coming from the outside of the archaeological context in China and, and working with uh, archaeologists on the ground from a number of institutions. You mentioned the Sichuan Provincial Institute of Archaeology. And they were our primary collaborators, uh, collaborating institution uh, when I was uh, doing my dissertation work, um, particularly the director of the, of the site, a guy named Sun Jirbin. And he is someone who um, I continue to have very good relationships with. That collaboration emerged um, in a quite 
a convoluted way. Um, uh, and it's uh, perhaps worth talking a little bit about um, just so that uh, the listener can have a sense of how uh, one way, actually, I can tell you a couple different ways that collaborations happen in China. In this particular case, I was um, a graduate student, as I said, at UCLA, and my advisor, uh, Lothar von Falkenhausen, um, who uh, teaches there, was uh, working in the 1990s to try to create a collaboration with Chinese um, colleagues of his uh, to do field work, since it had only recently in the 90s become possible for archaeologists to do field work in China. And he um, he initially, uh, as I understand the story, he initially really wanted to work on an, a, a first millennium BC urban site, um, because that's to some extent what his uh, uh, urban society and, and, uh, elite, and uh, elite society in the first millennium is one of the topics that he's worked quite a bit on. Um, and he, uh, so he proposed this to colleagues of his, particularly at, uh, colleagues at Peking University. Um, they responded with a proposal that he uh, look into doing archaeology of salt uh, of salt production in the Sichuan region. And this was a, a self-serving prop proposal on their part to some extent, because Peking University had been assigned as part of the Three Gorges Dam salvage operation to be responsible for archaeology in a county called uh, Zhongxian, uh, which is the county in which Zhong, the site of Zhongba is located. Um, and uh, they uh, knew that the amount of work that needed to be done in this region was beyond their capabilities as a teaching institution who could only have students in the field for certain parts of the year. They were unlike many um, uh, archaeological institutes uh, in the sense that they didn't have the resources to just dedicate to working on this region all the time. Um, and one of the sites in Zhongshan was the site of Zhongba, which was clearly just from uh, in, in, in a short visit. You could tell this was going to be an immense operation to be able to do significant salvage work there before the dam was built. Um, and so they saw the collaboration with UCLA as an opportunity to bring in some more resources and, and work there together um, with us. Uh, so this was in the mid-90s at a time where uh, there was a a move on the part of those who were responsible for permissions in the Three Gorges to uh, encourage outside uh, collaborations in order to mitigate the, the uh, reservoir zone. Uh, in the in the, in between the time when that proposal was first made to uh, Lothar von Falkenhausen and the time where he actually got money and uh, and everything was in line to do this, the Tenor had changed in China to a situation where they were discouraging international participation in this region. This had to do with political changes in, in terms of the perception of the Three Gorges Dam project from the outside world, uh, as well as other things, perhaps. Um, and so suddenly we were faced with the situation of having uh, uh, my advisor had, had money to do this. He had a couple of students who were interested in it. Um, and yet on the Chinese side, it wasn't possible to formally have a collaboration just between UCLA and, and Peking University to do this project. Um, furthermore, uh, as that, those changes occurred and as it became more urgent on the part of the Chinese archaeologists to get this project underway, Peking University had basically given up the site to uh, Sichuan Provincial Institute because they had the resources to, to deal with it. Um, so uh, uh, we were then faced with a situation where we wanted to work with uh, the Peking University team to, to work on the site, but they were no longer in, in charge, essentially. Um, and so the solution was for the Sichuan uh, Provincial Institute and Peking University to enter collaboration. My classmate, Chen Jen and I became students at Peking University, and we entered uh, into this project as uh, representatives of the Peking University side of this collaboration. So it was quite a, quite kind of 
convoluted process for uh, that that led to me and uh, and my classmate working there. And so once we were there, of course, our Sichuan collaborators didn't really know what to think of us. <laughs> um, I'm not, uh, one of us not speaking very good Chinese at the time, that would be me. Um, and uh, and their, their team had no English speakers, essentially. There's one, one person who spoke some English. Um, but it was so we had, you know, the two of us coming in from the outside, essentially being um, it, to some extent seeming like we we're being imposed on them by their uh, their superiors at the Central Provincial Institute. So there was a bit of a a time where we had to uh, figure each other out. Um, but I think that uh, that that time didn't last very long, partly because um, Sundarbin, the director of the project, was uh, very open to uh, having uh, new ideas uh, presented to him. And uh, as long as he could do what it is that he was, that w- what was expected of him, and we were going to complement that rather than overturn it, uh, he was willing to kind of let us do what we uh, saw might be interesting. So that was very uh, uh, important in terms of the success of the collaboration was his attitude. Um, it also helped that the, the the one of us who spoke better Chinese, my colleague, Tim Bojen, um, is a really nice person. Um, and uh, it's I think it was very easy for those of our colleagues who were communicating with us, particularly early on, to get a good impression of us through him. Um, I mean, I'm okay, but <laughs> but I didn't actually have an opportunity to screw things up since it was it took me a few months to get up to speed in terms of my linguistic. Uh, so uh, I think that those were those were the, that's the kind of nature by which this elabor- this collaboration emerged. More recently, I've been working in, in Sichuan as well, doing a, a survey project with that Chemojen is still involved in. Uh, is also involved in, um, along with several other uh, collaborators out from outside of China. But we're working with a different institute, uh, the the Chengdu City Institute of Archaeology. Um, And that collaboration emerged uh, much more organically because we had, over the course of the time where uh, Chen Borjian and I were in in the Three Gorges, developed relationships with people in Sichuan. um, And uh, those relationships allowed us to uh, have very straightforward conversations with uh, people who were uh, working in a region that we saw as uh, as an interesting and important region to work in, and so in, in that in in the case of the more recent project, we had we had some conversations over the course of a couple of years about what we 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 thought we could do, um, and then filed for a permit and and uh, and were allowed to move forward with a with a different project that was uh, based on much more familiarity than this first collaboration was. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the if we. This is actually a perfect opportunity to get into the book, um, to sort of get right back there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you open the book in the prologue in a really interesting way by giving us selections from your daily log, right, from your field notes. Um, so I would actually love to hear a little bit about why did you decide to do that? And, and I think I'll preface it by saying I think it's a great decision. I mean, I think it works really beautifully to bring the reader into the project. But um, so how did you make that decision as a writer? Yeah, well, I wish I could take credit for it, <laughs> uh, but I can't. Uh, in fact, uh, I think most of the structure of the book I can take most credit for. This I really can't. The um, uh, the book when I proposed it, when I sent in my manuscript to Cambridge, I did not include that the excerpts either in the prologue or the epilogue. Um, and one of the two reviewers of the manuscript uh, suggested that one of the very interesting aspects of this study was the fact that it was a first person account of. Uh, Field work being done in China in the early stages of when this was possible to conduct, conduct these collaborations. Um, so bringing an outsider's perspective on, on, on this discipline 
wouldn't it be nice if I could add something more in there about uh, my own personal experiences and, and make this a more, uh, at least in certain places, a more reflexive uh, project. Um, and I did think that was a great idea when I heard like, like you did. I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And I was fortunate to have um, uh, under the insistence and suggestion of my, uh, my, uh, my, my uh, PhD advisor, I've taken um, fairly extensive uh, notes on my experiences over the course of the project. Um, actually, I, I had very, I had extensive notes for uh, sort of a daily log throughout the entire two years I was in the field, but lost about six months of that through computer glitches. Oh, Fortunately, no. it wasn't the earlier part of it. And and w what I thought would perhaps be most um, uh, interesting to the outside reader who was curious about how, uh, as we were just talking about, how collaborations emerge in China and how um, uh, somebody coming from the outside uh, experienced this project for the first time was that initial stages of my, were those initial stages of my uh, interactions with my collaborators because they were, they were the, uh, the firsthand account from the time I was least comfortable and least familiar with what was, um, what was going on, what was going to happen, had, had, um, the least clear expectations about how the project would move forward. Um, and so I, I thought were perhaps the most instructive in terms of that uh, that in, that sort of interest. So I just essentially sucked them right out of my daily log, put them in there, edited them down a little bit to um, to be punchy. But what you uh, read in that section is verbatim what I wrote in the yeah. field. Um, it was uh, I didn't I didn't change any of the phrasing. I, I cut some things out to make certain segments shorter. But I didn't change my wording or anything because I thought it would be best to keep it true to the way I was thinking about my interactions at the time. Um, then the epilogue is um, is from a different standpoint. It's much shorter, but it's an excerpt from uh, a trip back to the site after the whole project um, was completed. And when some of my colleagues from Sichuan were still working in the region doing analyses, but the site was already underwater. Um, uh, at this that that point, it was seasonally underwater. It wasn't completely flooded. I think it is now. I haven't been back in a few years. Um, but uh, it, it sort of bookends the uh, the project that the dissertation come uh, book represents. I, I think it works really, really well. So <laughs> good job, manuscript reviewer. <laughs> So one of the things that you mentioned in the sort of in the first set of um, daily log notes um, is the sort of the difference. You, you allude a lot to the differences in archaeological practice between um, China and practices in the West. Um, and this is actually a theme that recurs throughout the book in really interesting ways when you talk about, and we'll sort of hopefully get to this, the importance of screening soil um, to remove the sort of uh, really small bone fragments that give us a sense of the fauna of the site in more depth. Um, but that's just one of what seem to be many differences in archaeological practice between China and the West, you know, at the point that you're doing it. So can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the first thing I guess I would say is that I think my impression going in was that there would be differences, uh, because this is the impression you get when you're not First, when you haven't conducted archaeology in China, is that things are done very differently there. It has a different foundation. Uh, there's a different epistemology associated with it um, than particularly in North American archaeology. And so um, I, I think I had expectations going in that there would be differences and that those differences might be difficult to overcome. They might be uh, very uh, problematic obstacles in terms of getting something done. Um, and I think that 
And so as this uh, prologue is uh, verbatim out of my notes, there are, I think, some ways in which I was overly sensitive to differences that um, uh, I perceive to exist. Now, that, that's not to say the differences don't exist. They do. But I think that in, uh, in many ways, it's important to realize that um, archaeologists in China, um, it's important for people who have no experience in China in terms of archaeology to realize that archaeologists in China are very competent. They're very good at what they do. They have been doing this for a long time. Um, and they're uh, and particularly those who have um, a have been educated in the um, uh, post-secondary system in China with a specific focus on archaeology, they have a very uh, broad understanding of the archaeological methods and theories that are uh, used in other parts of the world. Um, it's not necessarily always a deep understanding, but it is an exposure to, um, uh, I think, the, 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 the discourse and dialogue that's going out, on outside of China. Uh, and I don't think that archaeologists from that who work outside of China always realize that. So I, I kind of preface my comments with that. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, um, it is true that the uh, practice of archaeology in China has a disciplinary history that's very that's much more rooted in uh, in history and in the historical disciplines than archaeology is in North America. It's much more similar in that respect to Mediterranean archaeology, to classical archaeology. Um, to archaeology in other parts of the world outside of North America that are not kind of in the Anglo-American tradition of uh, of anthropological archaeology, um, and so uh, because of that, there are uh, some predictable differences in terms of the general uh, orientation of archaeology uh, in in China. Predictable in the sense that um, if one knew that it was characterized as more of a historical dis discipline, you might expect archaeologists to be um, uh, more overtly interested in reconstructing cultural histories and in, under, in trying to uh, understand the ethnic relationships between people in one region and another um, uh, in relation to historical uh, tropes that exist in a particular region and so forth. Um, those And those are very real uh, uh, foci of interest in Chinese archaeology. Um, there are also differences that, uh, in terms of methodology that have roots in that historical orientation. Um, and one of the perhaps most uh, important of these is that uh, a great emphasis is placed on uh, understanding the time-space position of a site or an archaeological assemblage uh, in terms of the overall uh, archaeology of a region. And therefore, and what is most important for reconstructing that is the ceramics collected from a site. Um, and particularly ceramics that are reasonably complete uh, and that are, are useful for identifying the archaeological culture into which those ceramics belong. And the archaeological cultures in China, unlike in other parts of the world, and some other parts of the world, are, uh, are based almost entirely on, our, on the form of vessels on, and on nuances in the forms. So what's most important, given that background and baggage, is that when you're, uh, when you're excavating a new site or a part of a site that you're not entirely clear where it belongs um, in terms of uh, culture and in terms of the chronology of a region, um, you want to get big pieces of ceramics that you can fit into known uh, 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 known uh, seriation schemes, mm -hmm. and uh, and that means that there's not necessarily attention placed on uh, collecting things systematically in a way that will allow you to uh, uh, to uh, uh, look at those the tiny pieces of pottery or the other types of archaeological material that are not easily fit into uh, these 
uh, schemes of these cultural history schemes. Um, and, uh, and also when there are choices to be made about resource uh, use, as there always are in archeological projects, because of the pressures of time and the uh, limits of funding and so forth, that there are certain types of data collection that are gonna be emphasized over others. Um, and so I think one of the bigger differences uh, in terms of disciplinary history uh, between North American archeology span uh, uh, as it's practiced and archeology span in China is that in the 1970s in, in North America, there was a great deal of emphasis in archeology span and in other social sciences and in humanities for that matter in, in uh, in the U.S. on uh, sort of scientizing the discipline, on, on, on collecting data and analyzing it in ways that allowed for attempts to identify uh, cross-cultural regularities, for example. Um, and through that uh, part of our discipline, where although it had its uh, kind of negative effects, one of the positive effects that it had on archaeology moving forward is a real emphasis on systematic collection on the importance of representativeness of samples and of, on the ability of statistics to have something to say about um, the data that are collected and exactly what that is what, what the interpret what that means in terms of interpretation can be debated but um, I think that it's widely recognized in archaeological circles in North America that um, if you want to say something about a data of an assemblage of data, Statistically, um, in terms of normative practices, those the data need to be, have been collected in a way that are that lend themselves to that sort of analysis. Um, or you could uh, kind of askew a, a statistics altogether. But you can't use statistics when the data weren't collected in a way that would lend themselves to statistics. And in China, that uh, that realization I think is much more recent. Um, and so uh, you you may have an interest in saying that a particular uh, archaeological assemblage has 50, has 60% one type of pottery and 40% another. Um, but if the data are collected with an emphasis on just taking big pieces out of the ground, um, you're not going to get a representative sample, right? So the, these sorts of uh, dis differences in terms of data collection, uh, I think were, were still very real in the 1990s. They may be becoming less so uh, in the last decade. Um, but it was one of these types of things that I, I, I guess I thought I was going to and I, and I did see to some extent, um, both in terms of the way people were practicing archaeology once I got into it, and in that in the what's in the period that's uh, recorded in the in the prologue, the way people were uh, presenting me with the type of information they wanted to collect. Because in that in that first stage, I was just basically looking at looking over data sheets and the way in which data were being collected at archaeological sites. Um, and thinking about how I might do things differently, given my experiences in other uh, other contexts where I had done archaeological field. That's actually really interesting to hear about. And one of the very briefly, um, I was just at a workshop this weekend where we had classicists and scholars of East Asian medicine and medical commodities together. And one of the things that we were talking about is um, the sort of the idea of the fragment as a basis for a certain kind of epistemology, right? And what you're describing, just the even the assumption that sort of points of information, statistics, uh, sampling, sort of fragments, speak to some sort of larger whole that's out there to be known. It's one way of understanding the world, right, and understanding history. And it's a way that seems to dominate a lot of our yeah. um, disciplinary approaches right now. But even just thinking about this in that context is, is really interesting to me. I think it's one of the and, ways. 
and that's one of the interesting things in the West. It's it's kind of it seems to dominate to the extent there's a lot of pushback against this uh, scientizing of of the uh, of disciplines. But when you come from a tradition where that is uh, dominant to a tradition where that's really absent or or, or very um, uh, less than or less than dominant, um, suddenly you start to see that as as perhaps more of an important thing to do than you might otherwise have. Right. So sure. the, it's an interesting position to see yourself in, uh, in terms of your disciplinary. Sure. Great. Okay. So let's move. Uh, This actually brings us really nicely into the next part of the book. Um, chapter two really situates this case study of Zhongba, um, by explaining the archaeological approach to the investigation of this phenomenon that you're looking at, um, using the case study of salt production, um, which is the organization of production of salt. Um, so it discusses the role that different types of products play in economic systems and the degree to which the type of product determines the organization of production. Now, one of the there are two main things that I wanted to ask you about in this chapter of the book, um, one of which is this cost and method. So you talk about the importance of the cost and method in the book, and this really seems to be the organizing principle for how you're looking at this larger phenomenon of salt production and what this can tell us about these larger social changes that you're um, talking about talking about. So can you tell us very briefly, um, if possible, about the importance of this cost and method for you? I mean, was this something that was foundational to the dissertation work? Is this something that you found inspiring since? It was definitely foundational to the dissertation work. I mean, so uh, so Kathy Costin, who was another UCLA grad, but before my time, um, but is somebody who I, I know reasonably well, she's uh, uh, an archaeologist who works in South America, primarily in the Andes. Um, and uh, is now teaches at Cascade Northridge. Um, she is um, someone who's had a, a, a considerable impact on the uh, on approaches to production and specialization in archaeological context because uh, she was one who who kind of stepped back from the uh, the data in the 1980s under the under the um, influence of her advisor, a guy named Timothy Earle, who's been at Northwestern for the last decade, a couple decades, um, but he was at UCLA before that. And uh, uh, he was he's an archaeologist who has emphasized the importance of understanding the economy in, in the ancient economy through material remains. She was uh, someone, one of many students who has who developed some of the themes that he was interested in, and her her developments really focused on production and specialization. And, and so she stepped back from the data that she was collecting in the Andean context and thought about um, more cross about cross-culturally the models that people were using to um, understand what specialization means and also to uh, identify it or its various forms in archaeological context. And what one of her main contributions was to uh, critique the uh, uncritical use of specialization in archaeology um, by pointing out that there's uh, there are variability there are variables that make uh, specialization a quite complicated concept um, the degree to which uh, production is full-time or part-time for example the, re- the degree to which it's it's a concentrated in one place or many, um, the degree to which workshops are involved in, involved in the process, and so on and so forth, and th- this is kind of what she broke down in her uh, in her model. 
Um, and I was exposed to this uh, this model initially through a paper um, that she and a woman named Melissa Hagstrom wrote, um, who was also an Andeanist who worked on pottery. And they wrote about uh, this uh, general uh, approach to uh, understanding the organization of production. Uh, in, and I, re I read this paper in a class I was taking as a graduate student on, on ceramics, on the analysis of pottery, and, um, and realized that it was very... Um, useful way of thinking about uh, the organization of production in the archaeological context because it um, was not overly prescriptive, although parts of their model I don't particularly like because they get into typologizing social forms, which is a, a, an approach to archaeological interpretation that really was dominant in the 1980s and, and 90s and has fallen further, more and more out of favor as people found it much more, more and more problematic. And I'm one of the people who doesn't necessarily think that gets you very far if you just place a particular context or a particular culture or society into a box, a chiefdom or a state, a, um, a, a specialized household workshop or a um, industrial workshop or something like that. Um, so that, that aspect of their model aside, um, I, I found it very uh, useful to think about um, the uh, parameters of production uh, in their many forms. Uh, when looking at a, 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 a site that was clearly one in which in, uh, a significant component of the activities going on there was, was production that was specialized to some degree or other. And so when it became clear that I was going to be working on the site of Dombah for my dissertation, this immediately came to mind as a model that I wanted to adapt um, in uh, my analysis. But certain assumptions associated with that model that actually have the roots in work that was done by Timothy Earle and some of his other students, as well as by Kathy Costin, didn't seem to fit so well with the product that I was think that we were thinking was being made at this site. Um, uh, and so there were assumptions that were embedded into the way the model had initially been constructed that didn't seem to be um, uh, universally applicable as I was thinking about the, the context of salt production in China. And so part of the chapter that, um, that you're referring to uh, is, uh, involves presenting the model that Kostin developed um, and variations on it um, in its uh, original form to some extent. Uh, and then part of that chapter uh, involves uh, critiquing um, assumptions associated with interpretations that have been made based on that model uh, from the standpoint of other scholarship that, that, that is out there. And, and so the, and what I try to do there, therefore, in that, in that chapter is get us to a point where we can adopt a fairly similar approach to Costin, but with, with some of the assumptions changed um, or, or um, made looser uh, to some extent um, to have less presuppositions in, in, in kind of in one's head as one moves into the, the investigation of a particular case study and the case study here being being Domba. Um, so I was, I think, equally influenced by work by um, Arjuna Paderai, for example, um, and Sidney Mintz. Um, Sidney Mintz's work in particular is one who, somebody who worked on, on sugar and it's the changing values associated with sugar in the Caribbean um, and the triangle trade in, in the Atlantic. Um, and that was an important kind of uh, uh, touchstone because 
salt, which is the product that I was thinking about, thinking about, but not really dealing with because the salt's all gone. And we're just dealing with the tools that were used to make the salt and the other things that were uh, left behind at the salt production facility in, at, at Chumla, um, is like uh, sugar, a consumable commodity that uh, the value of which and the values associated with which can be quite different in one cultural context than another. And we know that from ethnographic studies. Um, uh, and uh, and so those those types of studies, the work of, of Apaterai and Mintz, um, were, were some of the reasons why I, I came to question assumptions associated with the original model that Costin that, uh, had worked out. But I, I but, but I really liked the model as as a, as an approach as a as a means to get at the organization of production in archaeological contexts in particular. Although I think it's widely applicable to ethnographic and contemporary contexts as well. Perhaps less satisfying for people working on uh, on uh, contexts within which you have a lot more textual or uh, informant data because it's a little bit mechanistic. But for archaeologists who are dealing with Fragments, fragmentary evidence related to, um, typically related to uh, aggregate practices in the past. Sometimes mechanistic models can be more can be a very effective. <laughs> and and that's actually um, I'm so glad you mentioned a patterai. I was that's one of the things I loved about um, this chapter and really the book is that you're really challenging. Um, assumptions about the ontological status of an object being one kind of thing, right? And with salt especially, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned just really beautifully how this was not just, um, I mean, this was sometimes a luxury good, this was sometimes a ritual object. I mean, salt was many different things to many different people, and um, this is, I think that's a great reminder. Now, one of the things you just um, mentioned, though, is something that I think leads us on into the next part of the book, um, which was fascinating just methodologically. And that is, this is a story about salt, but the salt's all gone. So how do you get at salt production when there's no salt left? And the way um, you get at this is you emphasize for us, or at least this is what comes across, I think, really nicely in the book, the importance of multiple lines of evidence um, in demonstrating salt production. Um, And you sort of, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what some of the challenges were in doing this, because you're putting into dialogue about in this story about salt, you know, ceramic shards and, um, you know, divinatory sort of bone fragments and, you know, uh, looking at the structure of pits and landscapes and, and in addition to texts and bamboo slips. I mean, it's an extraordinarily rich, very varied set of evidence for talking about this. And so how does, um, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of that or the opportunities or, However, you want to go. I would rather frame it as opportunities, just because. I mean, it is challenging in the sense that you do uh, need to find ways to introduce uh, the methodological background for different types of analyses and how uh, there may be uh, confounding factors that have been discussed theoretically in, in terms of the discipline. And you can't just put that all in one chapter in the beginning of a dissertation or a book. In this case, um, if you're dealing with a lot of different types of evidence, so it's, it's challenging, perhaps in in terms of the way in which you present uh, a study. But I think it's much more of an opportunity uh, uh, to, uh, or a positive thing, to have the opportunity to deal with in a relatively discreet way um, and multiple lines of evidence. Because I think it's always for archaeologists much more so, and, and historians and other social scientists much more um, uh, satisfying when you can, um, when, when one line of evidence uh, doesn't address certain aspects of the model that you're trying to deal with or the questions that you're trying to address um, 
or if it does, it's just only suggestive or or quite um, hard to interpret. Uh, and you have another, but you have another line of evidence that speaks much more directly to that, um, but perhaps less so than your first one. And it's through the aggregation of the multiple lines of evidence that you can start to build up build up a more convincing picture that deals with a more than just one or two aspects of the model that, that one was trying to develop. So in this particular context, um, I was uh, I was really fortunate to uh, have a fairly discrete area within which I was gathering data, and yet tremendous amounts of, of data to deal with. So my data set was defined in a way by the place that I was collecting the data. So we are, just to put this in a little more um, context for those who haven't read the book, um, uh, I, my, the excavation I was in charge of, uh, together with my, my colleague uh, Chemboden, was a 10 meter by 10 meter excavation unit in the middle of, a, of uh, about a 15 meter deep uh, midden of debris from about 2,500 years of production um, and a nicely stratified set of uh, archaeological deposits. Um, and yet we were confined by this one archaeological unit, which has its drawbacks. It was made it very difficult to talk about spatial differences across the site, other than to a very superficial level. Um, but it wasn't the case that other work wasn't being done. We had a, the entire site was being excavated by our colleagues from the Sistrom Provincial Institute, although using much... Um, faster, less um, uh, methods that were less concerned with uh, collecting the data in the same way we were, right? So it makes certain types of comparisons difficult to, to carry out. Uh, nevertheless, it did allow us to get a general sense of the broader spatial context within which we were finding things. Um, and yet we were able to then focus our attention on diachronic change, on which was what the, the this one telephone booth of a 10, 10 by 10 was really most suited to uh, to discussing. Um, and the data were so rich that you, we, we could say a lot about that um, in terms of, and, and most of the data were uh, fragments of pottery and bones. Um, and uh, pottery is, again, something that we had to deal with uh, to an extent because it was the data... Uh, that we needed to report to our colleagues from the Sichuan Provincial Institute. But even if that hadn't been the case, we would have, of course, wanted to look at these in great bit of detail because they were the primary means of evidence uh, for the production of salt itself because the, the, the pottery vessels, the vast majority of the um, pottery objects we were collecting were um, from vessels that were used in the salt production process. So they were our proxy evidence for the salt production. And yet they were not salt, as you pointed out, so what we needed to do, to some extent, was think about how at this one site, not only was salt being produced, but the things that were used to produce the salt was being produced. And 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 also the other evidence, like the animal bones, was related to the people who were producing the salt um, and what they were doing with the salt and those sorts of things. So um, there, there was a, a book that's been published, an edited volume that's been published since my dissertation um, by a... Uh, a scholar at uh, um, University of Southern Illinois um, named Izumi Shimada. And uh, this, is, this book talks about um, multi-crafting. Um, I think that's the term that they use, uh, and which specifically refers to the, uh, the fact that in production context, it's not just one type of thing that's being made. Frequently, you have multiple things being made by the same people, or you may have multiple groups of people making different things, but then using it you know, together 
You may have one group of people making something that's then used by another group of people to make something else. There are lots of different ways in this in which multi-crafting can be configured. Um, but it's the, the important point that they they make in that volume is that there are um, that you can't think of production processes in isolation. If you want to talk about specialization of any of any product, uh, ceramics or or um, or salt or anything else, uh, you need to think about the other things that were uh, being made at the same time. The the broader economic system into which the uh, commodities were being uh, put, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and you can do that effectively when you have multiple lines of evidence that are from the same context, and you can compare changes over time in one to another and so forth. And so this was part of the, the, the kind of attraction of, of working with this data. Another aspect of it had to do with the fact that I had some training as a zooarchaeologist working with animal bones. And, uh, and using them to understand uh, subsistence practices and uh, social patterns in the past. Um, and so here I was then able to wrestle with a, a component of the data set being collected at Gomba that nobody else was dealing with, and even from the other units. Um, and that was particularly, um, uh, particularly benefited by the systematic collection we were engaging with, because um, unlike pottery, which our colleagues from the Sichuan Provincial Institute would collect at least the mo most of the big pieces. The bones were only, they were only collecting, you know, the few fragments here and there that seemed to be in particularly interesting context or were really big mammal bones. Um, and by screening, which is something you mentioned before, we were able to collect all the bones um, that were in this one particular area of the site and realize that they were tens of thousands of fish bones essentially none of which had been collected by our colleagues. I mean, a few here and there, big pieces of fish bones. But if you looked at just, you know, what percentage of the diet was being uh, comprised by fish, uh, based on the data that were collected by our colleagues, you would think, oh, they were eating some fish here and there. Um, by looking at the data we collected, you know that fish overwhelmingly dominated the uh, animal bone assemblage from the site, probably everywhere at the site. Um, and I argue that this related both to the consumption patterns at the site, but also to what was being done with the salt in terms of salting fish and salting meat and trading that as a commodity to other places. Right. And I, I mean, I have about a billion things that I wanted to ask you about before this, but I'm just going to jump ahead to that part because this is I, uh, cards on the table. I have uh, my, my undergrad background was paleontology. And so oh. this was, I immediately, I loved this part of the book on zooarchaeology, and it was just so incredibly fascinating. So you've already talked about the importance of salt to meat and fish preservation. And one of the things that this chapter does so beautifully is to, again, sort of take this other line of evidence into looking at salt production by looking at this extraordinarily rich archive of bone fragments. And I mean, you, you do these beautiful things like, you know, pointing out that some of the, there's a certain kind of um, was it hyperostatic hyper bones in fish? There's mm -hmm. a certain phenomenon that can happen that actually changes the shape of a fish bone so that it looks like another kind of bone fragment. And you sort of give us the tools to read the skeleton of a fish in a way that tells us something about economic production and consumption in this period, which is just um, incredibly fascinating. Um, and so um, I... There are a lot of really interesting things in this chapter, but one of the things I want to make sure that I um, that we talk a little bit about, because you've already mentioned um, the importance of salting um, fish and meat, and there's a really wonderful set of recipes 
for salted fish um, that you give us in the book. And I want to, um, in particular, direct culinary historians or people interested in the history of food to this, because, you know, this may not be obviously um, something that you see when you pick up the title of the book, but it's a really wonderful resource for culinary historians. But it's also a wonderful resource for people interested in ritual. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the importance of, and really deep importance here, of ritual to this site, um, which is really surprising and interesting when you think about, you know, salt production. We don't think about ritual practices. Uh, so I mean, one of the most surprising things that we found uh, in our excavation, particularly surprising to me, because I totally didn't expect it. Um, and I think that had a were I as experienced or knowledgeable about the bigger picture as I am now, I might have, but um, but not necessarily, was the fact that we found fragments of oracle bones, of, of bones that were used for divination um, uh, and in, in the context of the salt production site. And these bones uh, were part, are part of a, a broader um, historical practice of divination using bones uh, that dates back to the Neolithic um, in northern China, and it developed into, most famously, the, uh, the divinatory practice that was associated with the aristocratic lineages at the uh, last capital of the Shang uh, dynasty, the second dynasty of the three prehistoric dynasties that are the fount of Chinese civilization, um, and on uh, are the, the medium on which the earliest writing from China is known. And so these objects, the bones that were used that were burned in uh, the context of divination um, have an extremely important place in the history of archaeology in China and in our understanding of Chinese history. They are important for the history of Chinese archaeology because um, it is the it was the recognition in 1899 of, of inscribed characters on bones uh, by um, uh, a, a, a by a scholar in the um, uh, who uh, who was familiar with paleography and was familiar with Chinese history, um, it was a, it was the recognition of these that led to the discovery of the uh, Lashan capital, and it led to the discovery of a huge corpus of documents that were uh, that have uh, components that were shared with the received tr textual tradition that dates to a thousand years later, and allows for a much more rich understanding from a historical point of view of what was going on uh, from about 1250 to 1050 BC uh, in the Central Plain area um, associated with these culture, these these uh, these polities that we see of as being the fount of Chinese civilization again. Um, so that that's why they're really important historically in terms of the history of the discipline. Historically, they, they're really important because they are the, the medium on which we have this early textual information. Um, and so those uh, for those two reasons, oracle bones are a big deal in Chinese archaeology. But one typically thinks of them only in terms of the inscribed examples of them, those ones that are associated with the late Shang capital and a couple other places, but not very many other places where they're inscribed, despite the fact that they're found all over the place without inscriptions from periods as much as a thousand years or, or more earlier than the late Shang capital at Anyang. Um, and, and much later as well. And uh, in the in southern China, along the Yangtze River drainage, you almost never hear about these, but they're not actually all that uncommon either. Um, particularly in the middle Yangtze region of Hubei and Hunan, for example, um, uh, bones that were burned in divinatory practices have been found at a number of different sites, um, uh, most of which post-date the uh, inscribed bones from Anyang, 
um, but are on different types of animals. Um, they have turtle plastrons, which were actually a common uh, taxon in the onyong assemblage, um, but also fish bones. Um, fish cheekbones, uh, the the uh, opercula of fish, were used for this as well. And um, this is not these these were bones that were never used in the northern tradition of uh, oracle bone divination that we um, associate with this early writing. Um, and the Three Gorges area is an area that you never, you never hear brought up in, in association with this practice. And yet, here, when, when we were excavating in our unit, we found a few, and then we found a lot more. And in, particularly in, in our unit, we were, because we were screening again, we found over 300 small fragments of these divinatory bones, um, which suggested that this was uh, tied into networks of ritual practice associated with um, divination and uh, and the use of uh, of this particular type of divination uh, that show the uh, the way in which rituals can connect different uh, communities, the way in which religious practices may be borrowed from one region to another and yet adapted to particular local circumstances. Um, and then I I interpret this in terms of also the activities that were going on at the site in terms of salt production and how ritual behavior. Um, uh, and economic behavior can be intertwined uh, inextricably from one another. And so that's where I try to bring it into conversation with this broader uh, regional practice. And because you, if I'm right in reading this, you're arguing that the people who are most probably responsible for much of this divination are also probably the same people who are responsible for managing the salt production, right? So you're able sure. to actually use this ritual practice to locate kind of managerial hierarchical structure that's in this right. larger economic system, which is just fantastic. Now, I promised you at the beginning, um, before we started recording, that I was going to try to keep this <laughs> reasonably to about an hour. So there are about a thousand other things um, that I that are fascinating about this book that I um, would love to talk with you about. But rather than taking up so much more of your time, I'm just going to sort of point the listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book Um to just a, a few things. Um, this is you. There's a really fascinating discussion of um, types of pottery and types of ceramics that are recovered um, in this site. I think it's for for those of us interested in the kind of evidence used to tell a story too, and how to create a narrative out of fragments. Um, there's a really just like there's a really wonderful way of reading really fragmentary um, fish bones as sort of parts of a larger story. There's a really wonderful way here of reading sort of the the form and the shape and the distribution of shards of ceramics is a larger way of telling a story, which is, again, just really fascinating. Um, there are um, a lot of opportunities here for thinking about comparative history more broadly um, on many, many levels. And um, so I just want to put that out there. Um, you, you talk a lot also in one of these chapters um, about the importance of spatiality. Um, to understanding this. And maybe um, maybe before we wrap up, I'll ask you to, to sort of talk a little bit to that phenomenon, because it seems like it would be a real shame if we didn't um, have at least a couple of minutes. Um, is that, if that's okay with you? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I, I, um, um, go ahead. No, no. Oh, just, yeah. If you could just say a little bit about the importance. I mean, this is, um, in some ways, you're giving us a kind of environmental history, mm -hmm. right, of this built space. Um, mm -hmm. through um, this really interesting set of sort of interweaving strands of very different kinds of evidence. So um, I guess, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the kind of the spatial dimension of this story? Yeah, and the, the spatial dimension is one that I, I 
I was particularly interested in in pursuing, and in fact, in, in the other book that's not done yet, um, we we in, are sort of interrogate to in a very different way um, the spatial dimensions of of regions in terms of looking at landscapes and how landscapes are constructed and what the various components of those are. Um, but in this, and this is a uh, an interest that I've had for a long time. Partly, because my dad's a geographer, a cultural geographer, so I've always had an interest in space and place. Um, and uh, there's a geographer named Ifu Tuan who's sure. worked in, in terms of topophilia and the, the, the sense of place that people are associated with is something that I, I feel is important to understanding any context that, um, that you're looking at archaeologically or historically. And archaeologists generally are really interested in placement, in placement context in particular, in, in particular spatial context of things as they are associated with one another. This is where uh, archaeologists bring something to the table that no other discipline really can. Um, is by putting things not only in their their chronological context and their social context, but in their physical spatial context um, and their material context. Right. So uh, space is something that is that I think archaeologists always try to deal with to some extent. And in the uh, in the context of this particular excavation, again, we're dealing with a a very deeply stratified site, and there are changes in terms of the material objects that come out of that strata, those strata over time. And, that we investigate, uh, that I kind of talk about in, in relation to other questions. But another component of the uh, or of the material that we were uh, excavating were the features, the um, the uh, in place uh, structural components of the uh, the stratigraphy. Uh, so not the objects, but rather the places where the objects were in the the pits and and workshop floors and gutters and so forth that were. Uh, Making up the uh, the organization, the space, the physical organization of the site. And so, when talking about the organization of production, as I was trying to do, one needs to, of course, talk about the physical organization of of the production space. Um, and one of the interesting aspects of this, as we look at change over time, is that there are uh, different types of features that emerge uh, throughout the several different phases of production activity at the site. So. That can be cataloged like artifacts. The, the kind of develop the emergence of and disappearance of certain things was an important component of this. But then, uh, for the majority of the time period, um, the, the last thousand years that I was dealing with, um, there is a a fairly consistent, although you know, slightly changing over time, procedure that was being used. Um, and the spatial component of that involved the production of these rather ephemeral workshop floors. Um, that were interestingly all or, oriented in more or less the same way, uh, and that I th I thought that that orientation was a very important thing to note and document and, and interrogate a little bit because it suggested that this was not just a haphazard replacement of structures on top of other structures with uh, hiatuses in between that did not take into account the previous uh, uh, um, organization of space, but rather that the organization of space was maintained and perpetuated over time, that there was a degree of entanglement in terms of this organization that was um, that that the people who were living and working there were embedded in, um, and that that uh, that those those kind of that, that organization of space was important to uh, discuss uh, as another means of evidence for documenting the managerial aspect of, uh, of the uh, production process um, and the integration of the uh, production that was uh, going on across this site, the, the entire site. Thank you so much. And as a, as a historian of a later period, I think we could really 
Um, I found this particular treatment very inspiring and this, the, your attention to workshop floors and this kind of spatiality and spatial memory um, in many ways of um, this site. And it really, um, I think this is a fantastic book for historians of later periods of China and beyond to look at as a way of trying to bring a more um, more sensitivity to a kind of the material nature of the history we're doing to our work. And this is, it just, you're giving us a kind of a roadmap to do that and not just a, an example of how to do that. So, so thank you very much. Well, we, there's a lot in the book um, that we didn't talk about. Um, there's a lot of fascinating things in here. So um, before we close, is there anything about the book for listeners who may not have um, had a chance to read it yet that you want to make sure that you mention that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I feel flattered about all the nice things you said about the book. So I, I, I really love the book. So. Might just leave it as it is. I mean, I, the one thing uh, I do try to do in the book that we didn't talk about very much is, um, and it could have been expanded quite a bit, frankly, had I had more space and more energy and more um, uh, time to write a whole other thing, I suppose, is the uh, the history of salt production more broadly within China and East Asia into which this fits and, and, and globally. I mean, there are two ways in which I approach that. One is the is cross-culturally looking at archaeology of salt production worldwide and the number of different contexts that have been published on and worked at um, to, to think about how those previous studies in, it could inspire me to ask certain types of questions about the salt production going on at Zhongba. So I, that, that was one thing. And then the, additionally, looking at um, uh, the, the place that Zhongba played or the role that Zhongba played in the history of salt production in China. I mean, salt production, um, I don't think we've said yet, was extremely important in the imperial period because salt and iron were monopolized uh, during the Han and then periodically throughout imperial uh, China um, as the primary means of financing the, the state. Um, and so salt is something that instinctively reminds the Chinese historian um, and many other people familiar with Chinese history of uh, this, the role that this commodity played and the monopoly of it played in the maintenance of state activities more generally. Um, at the time period that is focused on this book is pre-imperial. And so it, it talks about uh, some of the early stages of salt production and whether or not they fit in uh, in some way to this grand narrative of salt production that starts only 2,000 years ago rather than 3,000 years ago. Um, and it's important also to realize that the Sichuan Basin was an important uh, uh, source of salt during historical periods, but it wasn't the only important uh, source. Uh, the coastal areas, of course, were very important. And so Zhongba is only kind of one node in a much more com complicated uh, network of salt production and transportation localities. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, an early node that uh, speaks to a stage in the development of this um, economic activity that's, that's really formative. And, and so I, I think it's wor worthwhile mentioning that as well, because the, the book deals with those topics. Absolutely. So what's next for you? Where are you, where are you going next? I mean, you've, you've mentioned the, this other project that's coming out soon. Yeah, well, that so that so there's another book project that's coming out too, which um, is the the primary fieldwork for that is actually still the Zhongba material, and then there's been a lot of more kind of literature review and, and a synthesis that uh, builds the bigger picture within the, which this is placed. Um, more recent, more recently, after I finished the project in Zhongba, I spent about um, six years uh, in the Chengdu Plain, um, 
with an international collaborative team that involves uh, Chen Bojen, who I mentioned before, the Chengdu City Institute of Archaeology, people from Peking University, other scholars from the West, including Gwen Bennett at McGill University and, um, and Josh Wright at Stanford and a few other people, um, where we've been doing a big uh, archaeological survey looking for where uh, uh, remains of human activity from different time periods in the past, uh, Han Dynasty and earlier, really uh, exist in, in a landscape that was transforming over time. Uh, it, leading up to the Qin unification of China and then it, subsequently. And so we've been trying to work out um, in a very difficult landscape how to map out uh, changes over time in uh, in these types of, uh, in just where people were act, who were active and living. Um, and that project just ended last year. And so so next for me, actually, in terms of this book, uh, the next is already done. <laughs> the, the next next is uh, I'm hoping to start a, a new project up in uh, in Gansu, in northwestern China, uh, just north of Sichuan, uh, in an area where there were some really interesting things going on in the uh, 3rd and 2nd millennia BC that um, I'm, I'm very interested in investigating further. And so that's what I'm hoping to turn my field attention in the near future. Um, but I have a lot of writing to do uh, related to the, this last, this previous, this recent project um, in, in Chengdu area that we really haven't gotten published yet. And so we have to spend a lot of time on that as well. Lots well, of on the <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. Cole. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we'll see you later. <laughs>